The failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hello, and welcome to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. The United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs held a set of thematic discussions recently. We're going to hear part of that on today's show. Much of the discussion on the second day centered around human rights and drug control. Today, we're going to hear from a couple of the experts who were consulted by the CND. Angela May is the chief of the Research and Trend Analysis Branch at the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And good morning to everyone. Um, so, uh, I'll... This morning, uh, I would like to focus more to dig more again on the issue of uh, uh, human rights uh, and drugs. Uh, and uh, this is more challenging, uh, at least for us uh, in research, because uh, it's something that, uh, in a way, uh, is not as structured as other issues that we have been looking uh, in our research on drugs. And so the big question when I thought, uh, how can I support the discussion uh, and maybe, again, to help you not to give, uh, in a way, findings, uh, but just how to stimulate the discussion and maybe to frame uh, the discussion and the issues uh, that are at stake. Um, the question has been, how do we frame the, uh, this linkage? How do we look at uh, this? And I... We definitely, uh, as a secretariat, we took note uh, also of the interest that was expressed by many countries yesterday on doing more research on the topic. So, given your interest, I really start more seriously yesterday night uh, to think about, uh, okay, if we have to do research from a global level on human rights and um, uh, drugs, how would we frame it? And so the first thing I, you know, we thought is well, to look at what is available in terms of looking at human rights uh, indicators, human rights statistics. And this is taken from the famous, I'm sure many of you that maybe are into the subject of human rights know that there's been a landmark publication from the Office of Human Rights on how to develop and how to construct human rights indicators. And uh, there are uh, a lot of uh, suggestions and, again, uh, an attempt to also frame these issues uh, in terms of human rights indicators. And uh, what I show in this graph, in this um, slide, maybe, uh, is uh, um, the, uh, just one of the, one of the many uh, um, issues and frame that uh, we can find in that uh, publication. But then, inspired in a way by what uh, I could read uh, through that publication, and also what uh, we have been uh, thinking also when we think about uh, uh, human rights and drugs, huh? uh, I thought, as, again, as uh, uh, not to give a definitive uh, frame, huh? but uh, to... Um, okay, it doesn't work. Next one, please. Um, to, to give us, a, a, again, to start with a suggestion on how to frame the discussion and looking maybe into three areas. Um, no, the one pre before that, now you went too far. Um, and uh, as an example, uh, is uh, to reflect or maybe to, to look at the issue in three parts. 
One uh, uh, that looks at the issue of equality, non-discrimination, uh, human dignity, that is really part of the human rights uh, uh, instruments that we have uh, as international as, uh, um, international community, and so that uh, meaning that then uh, is looking more at. Uh, disaggregating all the information that we have and to see if there are subpopulation groups or individuals that are discriminated within the drug um, the challenge of being on drug use, being on the responses of government to drugs. Um, the other pillar to look at are more what I would call thematic rights, and so to see how they apply to the drug problem. And so to look at the issues that look, for example, at criminal justice, uh, so for example, uh, security, freedom from unimane treatment or punishment, uh, freedom from arbitrary arrest and detention. And then other set, uh, in a way, of rights that are more relating to the health, to the rights of health, and to the other rights that are more relating to, if you want, social and economic life, like, for example, right to work, uh, right to um, housing, uh, uh, etc. And then to look also, there are other issues that, again, are uh, um, embedded into the uh, human rights constituencies, is to look at cross-cutting issues, and particularly on participation, and, so, and see how is uh, our drug responses, for example, or uh, how is the drug problem evolving, and how, uh, you know, in terms of participation, uh, even in, in terms of the collection of data, for example, um, you know, in terms of, of particip participation of those that really matter. The big question is also, when we talk about human rights, uh, human rights of whom? And, um, and here, I think, again, as a reflection, um, is, uh, you know, when we talk about human rights, it's not only the human rights of people who use drugs, uh, but it's also thinking about uh, the human rights uh, of those that uh, also are uh, breaking the law. Uh, you know, we, we still have rights, particularly when we look at uh, the issue of, uh, for example, fair trial or uh, um, other criminal justice aspects. But there's one element, I have to say, inspired by uh, a discussion we are having these two days, by the way, together with uh, uh, you discussing here, we have uh, also the, um, uh, a meeting of our scientific advisory committee of the World Drug Report. And so this is very timely because uh, once we heard about the interest on uh, something on the World Drug Report, uh, we also started to discuss with our scientific uh, committee. And one of the things that uh, uh, in that discussion came out is also that uh, sometimes when we look at the human rights uh, in the context of drugs, it's also forgotten that uh, there are also the human rights of those that live around people who, drug, who use drugs, for example. And so what about the rights of the children that, uh, uh, of uh, people who use drugs? What about the rights of the family? Uh, what about the rights of the communities around, uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, areas where there might be uh, drug violence? Or, uh, so to, to ensure that in the framework of looking and discussing this issue, we also don't forget anyone. Uh, and we are not only discussing the uh, human rights of the people who use drugs. So again, uh, looking at, uh, if we t take the first part, uh, you know, equality and non-discrimination, uh, I think one of the big elements to look uh, is stigma. Uh, and stigma that plays uh, a, a really 
a, a, a very important role in all the, both in the responses to drug use, but also how drug use evolve. And here again, attempted again some reflection on how we may think of also and look at the impact of stigma. First. Uh, how stigma plays uh, in uh, um, determining drug use and drug use disorders. And I just give an example of some of the anecdotal research that uh, we have also presented in some World Drug Report. Uh, that, uh, for example, uh, uh, we have seen uh, the increased risk of drug use among uh, LGBTQI, for example, communities. Uh, um, and. Uh, because uh, they are around that stigma uh, provides uh, a certain type of vulnerability, then that, that vulnerability, bless you, <laughs> uh, a certain type of vulnerability that uh, increase the risk, for example, of drug use. So the stigma and marginalization is also becomes a, a risk for drug use and for drug users to translate into drug use disorders. Um, but then drug use itself very often in many cultures brings stigma. And then uh, the, you know, is a guy exacerbate uh, in a way what I will show you a, a vicious cycle. Uh, and then, uh, and stigma that also uh, prevent uh, full accessibility of treatment, for example, of prevention services. And again, just uh, uh, patching uh, research that we can find. For example, we saw in Nigeria that. Uh, uh, the fear of stigma is the second reason uh, reported uh, by people who drug with drug use disorder for uh, not going to treatment, for example, or not uh, having access to treatment. So clearly, I think uh, studying equality and non-discrimination, stigma will have to have uh, something very, uh, uh, um, an important role to study and to see the, uh, how it plays uh, throughout uh, uh, the drug challenge process. So again, if we look at uh, equality and non-discrimination, and we have already some research um, that we can build upon uh, and uh, that we have presented in previous World Drug Report in looking at subpopulation groups. And what is, uh, and, and again, to see how these subpopulation groups have experienced differently the impact of drug use, uh, and also how different subpopulation groups have different access uh, to services. Um, and, uh, you know, we have seen, and uh, the research, uh, in a way, is quite clear on depicting this uh, vicious cycle that, uh, you know, is when uh, uh, drug use uh, um, evolves in drug use disorders, uh, and then a series of... Uh, um, issues uh, affect uh, the social life, so for example, employment, poverty, etc. And all of these characteristics, again, exacerbate again uh, the risk uh, to move from drug use uh, and drug use uh, disorder. Um, and, but what, uh, again, uh, is interesting is, uh, and is important also to analyze more, is uh, to see how different social and economic uh, subpopulation groups uh, uh, have a different impact uh, on the drug use. And again, uh, in uh, uh, the evidence that we have is clear that, uh, for example, uh, the... Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> May I ask people online to mute their microphones, please? Thank you. Thank you. And uh, so, in the... 
few countries where there is information of drug use and drug use disorder by social economic status, it's clear that the higher social economic status, basically the richer, if you want, the more privileged people, initiate drug use at a higher rate than other subpopulation groups. But when drug use translates and so evolves into drug use disorders, then it's actually the poor and the lower social economic population groups that actually experience the, um, the highest impact. Um, and, and, and so that is important. Uh, so to understand, again, uh, that who is uh, experiencing the most negative impact of drug use. Um, other issues relating to subpopulation and, for example, accessibility to treatment, uh, this year, uh, World Drug Report, we analyzed uh, the difference rate uh, of women uh, in terms of percentage uh, uh, of women that use drugs and percentage of women in treatment. So you would think there are a lot of elements that play here in comparing the two, but overall we can say, you know, you would expect more or less to have the same percentage of drug use that translate in the same percentage of those that are in treatment. While you see here by drug, the different colors here by drug, that for almost all drugs, uh, and particularly for ATS, uh, they, uh, there, is, uh, there is, for example, one uh, out of two uh, drug users is a woman, uh, while it's only one out of five people in treatment uh, for ATS use uh, that is a woman. So that really indicates uh, how, for example, women, most probably, you know, relating also to stigma and other issues, uh, have uh, lower accessibility to treatment uh, uh, than men. Um, so again, uh, this is uh, just a few elements uh, of things uh, that uh, uh, could give an idea on how equality and uh, uh, discrimination plays uh, into the drug sphere. But uh, more holistically, I think then uh, uh, beyond uh, looking at uh, discrimination and equality is to dig also into what I would say this thematic rights, so thematic areas. Uh, so to look, for example, uh, at uh, when we talk about uh, right to liberty and security, or rights uh, to, sub to not to be subject to torture or cruel, inhumane, uh, or degradating treatment, what can we look? Uh, and then basically is to look at the whole criminal justice system and how the criminal justice system responds to the drug problem. So, for example, uh, you know, looking at uh, the, uh, the, the way the proportionality of uh, uh, you know, the drug offenses, looking at uh, how drug use related offenses, not uh, drug uh, trafficking or possession, uh, are treated through the criminal justice system. To see at the condition of uh, people who use drugs in, in uh, prison and also conditions of people that are in prison for drug related uh, uh, offenses, uh, how are the conditions? Uh, but also look at when we talk about security, look at also security of people and the security from drug-related violence uh, uh, of people that may not be directly uh, relating to the drug problem in the sense that they don't use drugs or they don't traffic drugs, uh, but they are, um, you know, how is uh, 
uh, you know, the security related to drug-related uh, um, violence, but also the security from domestic violence, as I was saying earlier. What about uh, the children and the partner? And there is a lot of research that shows how the family around uh, uh, people who use drugs are also affected. Um, and for example, there is research that talks about violence against women, of the women that are partner to people who use drugs. Uh, so, Again, to and we have a little bit on this, but again, this is outdated information and, and it requires a lot of more digging. But for example, globally, and this is data that we published in the 2020 World Drug Report on the number of people that are arrested, um, that are um, convicted, and the people in prison for drug-related offenses. And you see the different colors are for drug use related offenses, uh, that is the darker color, and the drug trafficking related offenses. And you see that, for example, at the first uh, entry point uh, in the criminal justice system, like the arrest, there are more people that are arrested for drug use uh, offenses. Uh, but then, uh, through the criminal justice system, uh, as it would be expected, uh, the, is the drug trafficking. So the, basically, there are still some people that are in prison just for drug-related uh, uh, offenses, but the majority are in prison for drug trafficking-related offenses. And then, uh, you know, issues also relating, for example, to the unsentence. How many people are in prison, actually, without a, a sentence? And here you see the global level... Um, uh, statistics uh, in terms uh, of uh, the different years for both uh, uh, sexes, women and, and uh, men, uh, on uh, and how this plays uh, um, uh, over the years. And you see that, for example, for women, actually the situation uh, is not improving at all. The, the percentage of women that are in prison without a sentence is actually increasing rather than decreasing uh, over time. And so these are, again, just a flavor uh, of the issues uh, that uh, we will need to look at if we want to look at uh, uh, thematic right. And to finish, uh, is just also to say that we need to look at things that uh, we have not really explored much at least at the global level, uh, in terms of the research that we do. And uh, the, you know, all relating, there is an old set of rights related, for example, to the right to enjoyment, to the highest attainable standard of physical and mental health. So all the issue relating to prevention and treatment, but not, you know, even the data that I showed you yesterday was just relating to the availability of treatment. But uh, if we want to look again with, through the lens of the human rights, it's just much beyond the availability and more to look at actual accessibility. So to look in terms of affordability, for example, that was raised, I think, yesterday from uh, Egypt, for example. So these are the issues that uh, really need to uh, bring in that we have not brought in so far when we look at, for example, treatment uh, and prevention, I mean, comprehensively. Uh, uh, but then there is also all another set of rights, as uh, you know, the green there, that are more kind of, I don't know, uh, 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 we call it a kind of social and economic right, uh, right to adequate food, right to education, uh, to housing, to work. And how are, uh, you know, this particularly for the people who use drugs, uh, or again, those around the people uh, who use drugs. Uh, and again, this is an area where I think there is uh, maybe a lot of uh, gaps uh, in information, but that's other things uh, that uh, definitely we need to look. So this is just uh, to frame uh, a bit uh, the possible uh, research that we could do this, but also to frame a bit your discussion. Thank you.
That was Angela May, Chief of the Research and Trend Analysis Branch at the UNODC. She addressed the UN's Commission on Narcotic Drugs at their recent thematic sessions. We'll have more in a moment. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Danilo Bellata is Principal Policy Analyst and Coordinator for Institutional Affairs at the European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to give me the floor. And um, before I begin, express I would like to express a word of recognition for the Secretariat for the tremendous job they have done before and, and during this meeting. It's like we online are there participating. Thank you very much for that. Um, dear colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor for the MCDA uh, to address you here today with the results of a, of a little small analysis, which is on the question, is the EU drug policy compatible with human rights? Next, please. And uh, for human rights, we take the definition, of course, of the Universal Declaration, uh, where probably the right to health is the most relevant here. Next, please. One question is imperative, however, when do we... Um, next, please. It's imperative when uh, we have a question of, uh, of the sort. Does the US one single policy uh, on drugs. And the question is that the European Union is a community of 27 member states, which was formed after the Second World War, little by little, during the years. And um, next, please. And in the field of drugs, member states are sovereign. We have said, we have heard that uh, quite uh, uh, in, in some speeches and yesterday from the US panelists very eloquently. This means that any government can take any drug policy measure in full autonomy. And, and therefore, different exist uh, among member states. As you can see in this chart, for instance, uh, where we plot the penalties for cannabis use and possession for use in the EU. And even more different exist, for instance, in sentencing, as we have noticed in a recent study that we have done. Uh, next, please. However, Confronted with very similar problems in the 70s and in the 80s, member states have joined forces to seek for more effective responses. So since the early 90s, EU countries like work together to approximate their position, their values, their principles, their goals, even their actions in the field of drugs. Next, please. And they have done this in joint documents that we call strategies and action plan, where informed by evaluation since 2000, as showed in this chart, uh, in the last 30 years, member states, under the promotion of the institution and in principle of the, of the European Commission, have adopted 13 of these policy documents. Next, please. These documents, uh, which are adopted by the EU governments in the Council of the EU with an open method of coordination, are not binding. It's very important, are not binding. However, their, their, their work, the work together of member states in drafting and adopting this document uh, along the years have contributed to a shape a very distinctive EU drugs personality. Next, please is what we call the EU approach to drugs. The approach to drugs at the EU level wants to be evidence-based, integrated, balanced, and multidisciplinary. And we aim to incorporate the gender equality and health equity perspective. You have heard that from all EU representatives yesterday and today. Uh, we make the case today that this approach is fully in line with the international conventions, but also with the integration of human rights uh, in drug policy. Next, please. Uh, 
If we look at the aim, for instance, of the um, of the 2125 uh, uh, new strategy, we see that the strategy wants to protect and improve the well-being of the society and of the individual. Aims at offer a high level of security and well-being of the general public, and aims at increasing health literacy. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, if I draw your attention to this aim, we can always see all, only see verbs uh, which are positive. So we 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 see verbs that aims to protect, to improve, to offer, to increase. Uh, Dr. Nontasut from the Office of um, of, uh, of Human Rights has rightly pointed out at the importance of language. Next, please. The EU legislator cares about words. They are important. They can do good. They can arm. And uh, and the EU drug strategy uses words very carefully. Uh, the strategy says drug phenomenon, uh, not drug problem. Nonetheless, we do not deny the existence of a problem. We say, the strategy says people use drugs, not other potentially stigmatizing terms. It says drug use. It simply, it simply says drug strategy not against something, but for something. In this case, is the health and security of EU citizens. And the strategy is not there to fight or to combat. As we saw, is there to protect, to improve, to promote. As I said, positive words. And as we know, behind words, there are actions. Next, please. If we look at the concept used in the strategy, especially those that are in direct relation with human rights, uh, we can see the strong focus on reducing stigma drug-related, with specific action, for instance, training for decision-making, for decision-makers about stigma given by people that have uh, suffered st drug-related st stigma. And Angela Mee referred how important uh, this is. A particular attention to individual needs in healthcare, attention to prison and prisoners, which are recipients of risk and harm reduction, but also equivalence of continuity of healthcare provisions and a strong commitment to gender equality. We have heard the EU delegation uh, saying that. And of course, human rights. Next, please. Uh, we have looked at how many times the expression human rights was mentioned in these long-term long strategies as a proxy of the importance the drug strategy gives to human rights. Uh, you see there, in 2000 and 2005, it was mentioned only once. It was mentioned nine times in 2013, and it is mentioned 17 times in the current strategy. Next, please. And finally, we gave a look to harm reduction. Why harm reduction? Because harm reduction, we think, is that policy that more than others brings a concrete help, a concrete compassionate help to those most in need. In the EU drug strategy 2005-2012, Arm reduction is a subcomponent of demand reduction. Eight years after, the aim of the strategy is to reduce demand and to reduce supply as well as the arm caused by. This as well as tell us that arm reduction was not yet mature enough as a concept to be an aim in itself. But this step is made in the last and current strategy, 21-25, where arm reduction is one of the three policy pillars and we believe with the same rung, at the same rung of importance, with supply and demand reduction. Next. Mr. Ambassador, I conclude a few minutes you kindly 
uh, granted me, saying that uh, in the EU, we do not think we have the silver bullet. Uh, you have heard that from, from Portugal. We are aware, aware of the gravity of the phenomenon, as we have underlined in our reports, and as uh, rightly underlined in, in the World Drug Report and the presentation we had from UNODC yesterday and today. But we see the EU drug policy going in the direction, in the good direction, of integrating the promotion and, pro and protection of human rights into its drug policy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Ambassador and dear colleagues, for your kind attention. That was Danilo Bellata, Principal Policy Analyst and Coordinator for Institutional Affairs at the European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction. He addressed the UN's Commission on Narcotic Drugs on September 22nd during their recent thematic sessions. There are a couple of conferences at the end of October that may be of interest, one organized by Moms Stop the Harm, the other by the Association of Healthcare Journalists. Both are being held as hybrid conferences, that is, people can attend in person or virtually online. The Moms Stop the Harm event is the grief conference, Healing After a Loss from Substance Use-Related Harms. More information on that at healingheartscanada.org. The Health Journalism Conference is entitled Reporting on Violence as a Public Health Issue. More information at healthjournalism.org. That's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. This has been Century of Lies. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. We'll be back in a week with 30 more minutes of news and information about drug policy reform and the failed war on drugs. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the century of lies. Drug Truth Network programs archived at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy.